What's up, gang? Before we get into this episode of Undiplomatic, I just wanted to mention up front that the recording, we had some like solar flare or electro interference or I don't know what. It sounds a little bit like we were in a 1980s radio station. Not a big deal. Uh, but I just, I'm, I'm putting that up front that it's not 100% normal sounding. The content is 100% money though. So I hope you enjoy. What's up, gang? You're listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. And in the booth, as usual, we've got Pete McKenzie, got that name right, mm -hmm. Gabby Magnuson, and then we got a new audio guy, Jake Dallow, who doesn't get a mic right now because we're ballers on a budget. There's so much to talk about. Oh, my God. This, this, this is the week the world melted down. But uh, I just have to say, first of all, good news before we get to the dumpster fire news. John Cusack retweeted my shit I saw that. and that was... sent me a very non sequitur message. It took like three reads for me to figure out what his tweet was, but like. And he used no capital letters and no punctuation. <laughs> and like, it was super weird. I, I think he was writing from like an angry place. Yeah. And the reason that I mean, we it's, connected. It's John Cusack, right? Yeah. We were connecting in the universe because of something tragic, but still, we connected. <laughs> and it's fucking John Cusack, dude. Except for like Seinfeld and Friends, he was my introduction to like the cultural content of, of white. Like I did, he, he was he was my gateway drug for like white culture, if that makes sense, white pop culture. Right. And so like high fidelity, amazing movie, and he listens to all this vintage like classic rock, whatever stuff. It, I had never heard anything but hip hop up until like that movie, really. And then America's Sweethearts. He was he he was like uh, jilted by Catherine Zeta Jones, and he was like depressed and trying to get over it, and then like he ends up dating her sister or whatever I got engaged really young uh, inappropriately young and then my fiance ended up leaving me and it was like my first like real relationship relationship right. and I didn't know how to deal with it and it was fucking awful and like it felt like the world was ending and the John Cusack America Sweethearts was my you know therapy in a sense like I watched it a bunch of times you could identify with the character because he got screwed over mm. and then in the end like he doesn't know what to do with himself and you're like oh yeah just like me what people who are listening can't see is that I had to note down those movie names because yeah, I've never watched them. And this is why Gen Z is desperately in need of like a cultural awakening. You're missing good stories. Like if you don't have good stories in like anchoring the background of your life, you're just floating. Like yeah. Meet America's Sweethearts. I, I just end up like <laughs> Among watching other things. Groundhog Day and like old Bill Murray films. That's a little too old. But I mean, it's it, Bill Murray's hilarious. Bill but, Murray's yeah, because see, I'm I'm elder millennial, so elder millennial. Okay, so anyways, so Rome is burning, uh, and we're gonna talk a lot about it. I cannot think of a time in my life where so many like foreign policy issues were either on fire or on fire adjacent, like just about to be on. Like fire. the lighter is just about to pop open, eh? On on like everything, and there's nothing. There's not a single issue that I can think of that is in a better position. There's not a single like geopolitical issue mm. that's better now than before Trump came to office. Occasionally, somebody will tell me Taiwan, but I mean, we're basically emboldening Taiwan right now by having close relations to antagonize China, and that's highly reversible. Mm. Like, we can leave them in the cold like the Kurds. Talk about the Kurds later. But basically, everything is on fire. And so maybe we should start with our new experimental segment that we're calling Prediction Markets. Yeah. Um, so we're doing a new segment where we essentially uh, 
get Vantic on the record um, and put his credibility on the line and we get him to answer questions uh, about all sorts of random stuff going on in the geopolitical world. So this is something that will generate questions, but we also want audience questions. So if you have something that you want to test Van on or if you want to test other members of the podcast on or whatever, flick us a message on Twitter and we'll, um, we'll add it to the list. But today, to give you a kind of an idea of the structure, uh, so the first one is on... A geopolitical topic that we haven't covered at all on this podcast. Will Britain leave the EU by October 31st? So the, the short answer is no, they will not. Not by October 31st. The longer answer is that, or the rationale is that, I cannot imagine a situation where Boris Johnson plows ahead with Brexit without overtly owning being a, a populist authoritarian. And you can see him sort of flirting with those traits. And, like, if the U.K. would let him, he would be, right? Mm. Like, the U.K. is not exactly a permissive environment hmm. for anything. I mean, <laughs> you know, so. Well, I feel like it's a really permissive environment if you've got a Ponzi accent and you come across, like, a little bit of a buffoon, but, like, in a harmless way, like Boris has. Whereas if you're actually threatening... Like it seems there are like Trump social is. checks and balances yeah. that don't exist in the U.S. that exist in the U.K. Yeah, we'll keep this rapid fire, and we'll keep doing. So the so the second question is: Will the PLA deploy to Hong Kong before the end of 2019? So I'm pretty confident that People's Liberation Army, the Chinese military, will actually deploy to Hong Kong at some point. It's just a question of when. By the end of 2019, I don't know. We're in October already. Mm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to predict no, they will not, uh, in part because Hong Kong police force have significant margin for kind of violent escalation themselves. Mm. And the PLA is a little bit of like a last resort. I don't, I just, I don't see a Hong Kong protest ending well. And of course, they do not have military superiority here. The Chinese do. So the Chinese are going to have to unleash that at some point. Um, so third question takes us a little bit closer to what the content for this episode will be is when will Trump leave office? And this is a multi-choice question, so it's a little bit more complex. A, before 2020. B, upon defeat in 2020. C, before the end of a second term in 2024. Or D, upon completing a second term in 2024. I couldn't hear. I just shook my head. A number of those. <laughs> uh, so the, the optimist in me is going to say B, and maybe I'm like biasing my own analysis here. I think that the impeachment, as damning as it is, it, the Democrats just don't have the balls to remove him from office. And it's not clear what procedurally would have to happen for that to happen anyway. And I don't see him just walking away from office early. May, I mean, may he could. I mean, some people, I've heard some people say that. And so I say he's going to like just leave normally. The one that has been dominating headlines recently is his decision to hand control of the Syrian border to Turkish troops. Will Trump reverse his decision to hand control of the Syrian border to President Erdogan? He's reversed his decision effectively twice on this specific decision already because he's declared Syria withdrawal twice. I'm going to say no, he's not going to reverse himself this time, in part because Turkey already moved in troops. This is done. He's already sold out the curve and I, you can't walk it back. The Kurds have already suspended counter-ISIS operations in order to defend themselves. So I, I feel like the, the horse is out of the barn on, on this one and he's not going to reverse himself. Okay, so audience, you can hold us accountable to that. If Van gets all of them right, you can shout him a free coffee. If he gets them all wrong, <laughs> you can also shout him a free coffee because he'll need the caffeine to recover. Yeah. But that takes us to our next segment, Stay Off Twitter. And in particular, Twitter. it takes us to a discussion of this Kurdish shit show that's going on. 
Um, so I might, I might kick it off with a tweet that I saw from Ned Price, who was uh, President Obama's special assistant and then spokesperson for the NSC, so a pretty impressive dude in my opinion, um, who tweeted that once we grapple with this operation, referring to what Erdogan has titled Operation Peace Spring, um, once we grapple with this operation, we'll need to confront a broader challenge. World leaders are openly defying the United States and seemingly with impunity. Far from restoring American strength and respect, President Trump has made us appear dangerously weak on the world stage. And I thought this was, I mean, I think the whole thing is tragic because it's true, right? Because like, <laughs> President uh, Erdogan has titled this operation Peace Spring in an apparent ironic nod to the Arab Spring. He launched an invasion a day after uh, being given control of the Syrian border and on the day of the invasion he called um, President Putin to chat about it and I think it is hilarious that it is such a blatant punch to American credibility on this issue and that Trump has no answer. I just thought it was, you know, a perfect analysis of the situation. Yeah, no, it's right. It's and it is tragic. People do not, and it's ironic too. Yeah. People do not respect the United States right now, yeah. and in particular, America's sort of foes or competitors or rivals. They're the ones who respect us the least right now. And it's you can drop a plumb line to the cause, which is Trump. I mean, it's there's it's a straight line. There's no, <laughs> and. Uh, you like I see this very sort of personally with North Korea. The only reason Kim Jong Un engages with the United States right now is because he sees Trump as a useful idiot. He thinks he can extract gains from Trump that he could not otherwise get from any rational leader. And that doesn't mean he wants to do a deal. It means he wants to exploit the useful idiot. And that's the case across channels. Xi Jinping, everybody, Shinzo Abe has been trying. The Japanese Prime Minister has been trying to make himself strategic strategically buddy-buddy with Trump in hopes that it helps secure Japan's fate and as an alliance. Putin, obviously, is the, the grandmaster of this, but everybody's playing Trump. It's so easy to do because all it takes is ingratiating yourself with him on a personal level. And again, like, Kim Jong-un is the one putting on a clinic with this stuff because all he has to do is send him not even handwritten letters, typed letters that he just puts a signature on. And as long as it says nice stuff to him, he gets Trump putting out these public narratives about how North Korea is going to change and they said they would denuclearize. And it's pushing on the door to the sanctions relief that North Korea has always wanted. And they have not they have not had to give up anything for this shift, this tonal shift. And the sanctions are becoming more porous. And there's a chance that Trump's going to pull a stunt in the next year that that completely favors North Korea and it serves Kim Jong Un's ends. But in what way would it serve the United States? And it's it's just that's how it's going everywhere. So I mean, it's not just like the, the Michael Fuchs, Fuchs, Fox piece <laughs> from last episode. It's not just that America's for sale, right? It's that has a useful idiot in charge that's being exploited. Mm. And you can see that with, you know, not only enemies, but also partners like Erdogan. And I think one of the most interesting parts of the impeachment inquiry and the release of the, the transcript by the White House with Ukrainian President um, Zelensky was watching how President Zelensky engaged with Trump, you know, saying, I stayed at your hotel last time I was around. Um, you're such a great leader. We've learned so much from your election victories. The way to President Trump's heart for leaders around the world is obviously to talk him up and to, to say how great he is. And Everybody knows this. Yeah. I mean, so like every, every intelligence agency in the world, not just the CIA, they make book on world leaders. Literally, they like will make a book with like a psychological profile because that's where you can find their pain points, mm. what, you know, 
how likely are they to succumb to pressure? How will they react if you, you know, use carrots versus sticks, etc.? This is the, the trade craft of intel is like you build these psychological profiles on world leaders to exploit them as much as you can to your advantage. Everybody's made book on him. Everybody, mm. know, the secret's out, man. And when he first became president in 2017, I published a piece in Foreign Affairs and I made a prediction. We're not on the prediction segment anymore, but like I made a prediction that Trump's like style of gov of of quote unquote leading, like his rhetoric alone, just the, f the fact that it's like all over the place, highly personalistic, inconsistent, was going to undermine the credibility of the U.S. And by extension, America sort of by default has this central role in the liberal international order or whatever you want to call it. And it was so it was going to undermine the credibility of perception of global order. Um, but I mean, most directly, it was going to undermine U.S. credibility because the bureaucracy was going to do one thing. Trump was going to say another thing. Trump was going to undermine himself by contradicting himself. We've seen this has all come to pass. Yeah. Didn't take a genius to say that because I said it. And <laughs> and that's precisely what the fuck has happened. And that's yeah. where we are. Exactly. It's okay. a perfect, a, I won't say perfect, but I, it's a great analysis of what's going on. Tragic comic. You um, also had a, a tweet that you wanted to share, right? Yeah. So Paul Post is a professor at University of Chicago. He had the world's longest Twitter thread. And like, I've never been on Twitter a long time. I've never seen a thread this fucking long and detailed. Even better, it was like a couple of sentences per tweet and then he'd move on. I just thought it was hilarious. It was fucking crazy. And he he built, it was like a tree and like branches and sequels. And like <laughs> he built threads off of his thread. And like he he's, he's like is famous for doing really long, good, insightful uh, international relations Twitter threads. So uh, look up Paul Post on Twitter if you want to follow somebody like really smart. But uh, in his, the, the first, he asked a series of questions and he provided a series of answers. The first one is what I wanted to focus on uh, on this thread, which is like, why did Trump make this decision to withdraw from Syria? And he put forward three explanations that are very much in line with what I said the last time we got together as an episode where it was like there are three or four theories of explaining Trump's. Uh, foreign policy, um, and none of them are, are good, and or like suggest good things for the future, you know? Um, and so the main explanation that uh, Paul Post posited was that Trump decided to withdraw from Syria for reasons of domestic politics because it was his campaign promise to get us out of, of wars everywhere. This, that would be a, a spurious application in this case because the, the troops involved were not really combat troops and they were mostly just providing intel to uh, Syrian defense forces and the Kurds. But that that's one explanation of the decision to withdraw. It's like, well, I said I was going to withdraw everywhere, so I need to withdraw somewhere because he's not withdrawing from anywhere else. <laughs> so uh, that's one explanation, right? Um, another is the useful idiot theory, or um, it's this, you know, first image level explanation of Trump's personal relationship with a world leader and then him him getting exploited by that world leader and that's how you can explain pretty much all of North Korea policy since early 2018. That's how you can explain sort of a lot of the vicissitudes in the China-U.S. relationship. Um, a lot of this like theory of personal diplomacy stuff. So the useful idiot, personal favor, quid pro quo with Erdogan. Trump has 
said publicly that he has done a favor for Erdogan. So that seems like a pretty plausible explanation. Uh, and then the third is, and this one I had not come up with before, but a political economy angle. So Paul Post was very astute in flagging that Turkey has agreed to buy uh, S-400 air defense systems from Russia. Russian equipment is obviously not compatible with U.S. equipment. Turkey owns a bunch of U.S. military equipment. And Turkey was in a pipeline to uh, possibly acquire F-35s from the U.S., which would be like this huge military industrial boondoggle sale worth a lot of money. But in, in the wake of the announcement that they were going to acquire the Russian air defense systems, it was looking like they're not going to go down this path of the F-35. And so Paul Post suggests that like if there is a if the reason for this withdrawal decision was the military industrial complex payday, like the political economy angle, then we should, if that's the case, then we should see evidence in the next six months or a year where either Erdogan reverses the Russian air defense acquisitions decision, or he will uh, opt into the F-35 and do whatever is necessary to throw money our way for that. And that's totally plausible. That's the kind of thing that is surely on Trump's mind. World's greatest deal maker. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of when it comes to motivations, especially of Trump, it's it's entirely plausible that there's like multiple motives going on at once, mm. all equally scummy and, you know, craven and whatever. But they're all they're all these things are probably at play. Um, and so I thought that was very insightful uh, of Paul Post. And there's one more tweet about uh, South Park, of all things. Highfalutin foreign policy analysis. Yeah. And it's so fucking good is the crazy thing. Um, so Matt Stone and Trey Parker, who are the South Park creators, they made an episode sort of South Park recently satirizing the whole China censorship thing and then with you know life imitating art China decided to censor South Park and purge South Park um, from the Chinese fucking internet <laughs> and um, in uh, classic South Park fashion Trey Parker and Matt Stone issued a, a tweet because that's how we do PR these days saying quote like the NBA we welcome the Chinese censors into our homes and into our hearts we too love money more than freedom and democracy <laughs> she doesn't look she just Jinping doesn't look just like Winnie the Pooh at all. Tune in to our 300th episode this Wednesday at 10. Long live the great communist party of China. May this autumn's sorghum harvest be bountiful. <laughs> we good now, China? The sorghum End harvest. End quote, dude. The sorghum harvest is fucking it's amazing. So fucking money. So money. Oh, it's so good. My immediate reaction was like, yes, more of this, please. Mm. This is how you fight fascism, right? With condescension, humor, satire. Satire is how you hold the, the politi yeah, account. that is right. That's why we do this shit. So um, in 2014, Kathleen McGinnis, who I'm going to have an interview show with quite soon, she wrote a piece um, in the wake of the Sony hack by North Korea over that the James Franco Seth Rogen movie the interview and she was she wrote uh, in War on the Rocks that like look people are scared of North Korea's cyber capabilities etc cetera, etc cetera. Kim Jong Un got very pissed off but this is how you should be treating dictatorships right and she's like there's a tradition from the Mel Brooks and the producers to Superman taking down the KKK by punching Nazis in the face right there's just this tradition of using humor and pop culture to oppose fascism to oppose dictatorships this is how this is how you fight. So we need more of this, and this is on message, the South Park thing. And autocratic regimes just don't get it, right? This is the perfect example of the Streisand effect, which what is the a, fuck a is the Streisand effect. It's such a classic internet phenomenon. So basically, it's like if you play whack-a-mole with internet culture, it's all going to explode back in your face, and that's oh uh, yeah yeah yeah. So like that happened with Hassan Minhaj in Saudi Arabia. It yeah. happened with with China and South Park and the NBA. It happened um, with like really crappy stuff, like the interview, which was you know it, it, it wasn't a good. 
this is a shitty right? movie. It was, nobody would have gone to watch it unless North Korea hacked it and it became a patriotic duty for American citizens to go watch this crappy-ass film, yeah. right? Yeah. By fighting internet culture and by fighting pop culture and fighting satire in particular, <laughs> autocratic regimes just screw themselves. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, so take note. Dear China, the show's name is Undiplomatic Podcast. If you want to ban, ban us, us. Please, please, please ban, ban us. us. I will make so much fucking hay out of that shit. <laughs> China, China, China. All right, ban us. I dare you. Right. I love it. I love it. Um, we're going to transition to our next segment now, which is Armchair Analysis, um, where we... Take the Armchair Analysis. From every, a different podcast. Every segment we have. You, to don't, you guys don't get it, okay. Where we take just an article that we thought was interesting or crappy or amazing um, and we just have a chat about it. So this week's article is uh, Dealing with China Isn't Worth the Moral Cost by Fahad Manju in the New York Times. Yeah. And basically it attacks this conventional wisdom that the way to um, liberalize China is to cultivate it as a market and to build economic links and that you have this win-win where you get democracy plus economic growth uh, all around the world. That hasn't worked, uh, I think it's pretty fair to say, and that the new premise that Fahad is pushing is that Chinese growth does not equal political liberalisation and that the kind of interconnectedness between uh, political systems and economic systems between the Western world and the Chinese world is an existential threat to liberal democracy. Um, He takes quite a radical stance where he, you know, acknowledges that some people say that cooperating with China is crucial for existential threats like climate change or any kind of multilateral diplomacy but he, even then he's like you know it's just too much for moral cost and we shouldn't do business with these uh, with this kind of massive threat and it was a massive article to appear in a, a big soapbox like uh, the New York Times yeah yeah they, I mean that's the that's the sort of highest profile place you could put put something yeah. like this so the first part of his argument right that that the liberalization bet on China has not paid off. Like, that's kind of conventional wisdom in Washington now in uh, democratic capitals around the world. It's like, well, the West made a wager, we lost. Um, and then there is this like very valid, unsettled discussion about what now. But so the first part of that's not new. The part that's new is to, argue, to go a step further and build on that and say, actually, engaging with China economically, trying to get your foothold in that market is counterproductive. That's just handing China tools of weaponization and censorship and bribery and corruption so the juice is not worth the squeeze on China and that's quite a bold thing to say and Mm. then the bigger implication really is that he's kind of implying that we should be disentangling our economies decoupling ourselves from China and there are hawks in Washington in particular, who have been arguing precisely that so that we could get it on with a proper Cold War, Mm. which is like, you know, a bit, it's like a step too far. Like, I don't, I don't subscribe. It's all calmed down when it comes to a new Cold War. (laughs) Like, I'm, I'm, I'm keen to never enter the China market, right? Um, And if I were in charge of a business, which I'm not, then like, I would, I would be very wary about entering the China market. I would not see it as this gold mine or this mythical thing. And I think that the juice is not worth the squeeze, but some companies are already there, right? The MBA is already there. To what extent? It shouldn't have to be binary, like all or nothing. Yeah. Right? And when it comes to doing business with China in the technology space where it's like technologies that they will use for suppression of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang or Hong Kong or whatever, if they're using what we're giving them for national security reasons 
or to facilitate oppression, then, I mean, that's a problem. Like, that needs to be decoupled. But if you're just making a buck because it's cheaper to make your fucking lipstick in China, mm. then, I don't know. I mean, that, that doesn't seem to be strategically consequential either way. It's really interesting looking at it from the perspective of, I mean, obviously the U.S. is a, a massive superpower. Yeah. It's interesting looking at, at it from the perspective of a country like New Zealand, for whom China is one of our biggest trading partners, who we are incredibly dependent on. And there is a real relationship of you know you don't question what's going on you uh, engage with them as like a one-way street and you you give them respect in exchange for money and it's a really kind of unquestioning relationship I, I wonder what you reckon the path forward is for smaller countries like New Zealand who are worried about how to engage with China going forward don't be evil dude mm. don't sell your soul it's that simple that's the basic test of humanity that the previous generation completely fucking failed don't sell yourself out for a Chinese dollar mm. and what we're seeing now is that like that Chinese dollar is more myth than reality anyway don't be evil like don't prioritize Chinese trade and investment over national security concerns over the quality of the relationship you have with your democratic friends around the world don't censor your public debates don't let there be a fissure between elites and the grassroots so like in the South Island uh, in Christchurch there were these huge Here in New Zealand. yeah there were these big grassroots protests because New Zealand sold the water extraction rights in the South Island to a Chinese company and people were pissed this this is our this is our resources and New Zealand's got some fucking really good water the Chinese wanted it and so New Zealand sold it off to them and people the 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 people not elites in the capital the people opposed it and it got all of like one story it was like live streamed on Facebook and forgotten mm. and then everybody goes about their day and so policy elites in Wellington and this is replicated in Washington and everywhere else like they hand ring about well, like what will China think if we make this decision or that decision the the primary litmus test for everything is like what will China think nobody ever asks what will fucking Australia think what will Washington think it is pretty funny I mean New Zealand has a, a long history of fucking off the United States um, despite the fact that we're you know security partners and everything in the yeah. in the wop wops of the 20th century what the um, fuck is a wop wop oh, this is true Kiwi slang um, in the in the later half of the 20th century you know we screwed with the defensive alliance uh, the ANZUS defensive alliance with the states our prime minister went over and insulted uh, American representatives and said that they had you know I can smell the uranium on your breath you know we, we really love to screw with the states I mean in and some ways that's holding power to account too, exactly right? like, you've got to be able to do that to everyone so that just do that with. to fucking China yeah, aim like, it at China exactly and the fact that you don't aim it at China and the fact that like nobody does except for fucking South Park's the only people with balls apparently I'm like a newfound fan of South Park like nobody's holding China to account mm. right um, and that's what we need to do when you normalize holding people to account as well you know if it's just one person often the backwards somewhere holding China to account it's really easy to isolate them but if it's yeah. heaps of people then it becomes much harder that's right and so uh, there actually was a, a piece in TechCrunch a week or two ago, which is the, the New Yorker of Silicon Valley or whatever. And that piece, which is, you know, the ultimate embodiment of the tech uh, industry, it was arguing that, you know, the Google case where Google had to leave China 10 years ago, like that was illustrative of this juice is not worth the squeeze. And it's, so the fact that TechCrunch is giving voice mm. to this perspective implies that like there is a debate going on even in the tech world, which is the 
least likely because they're in this tech utopia bubble. They still see the China market as like this mythical unicorn. And uh, even there, there's a sort of recognition that like, okay, the bloom is off the rose with China and, you know, it may not be worth selling our souls for the Chinese dollar. Who would have thought? Who yeah. would have thought? So this is this is a trend line now. This is a thing. And we should expect to hear more of it in the future. Like, do we decouple our economies entirely? Doesn't have to be binary. Mm. But this is going to be a debate that comes up more and more. Moving on. Let's hit on to Ask Me Anything. Ask Me Anything. <laughs> okay, excellent. So the first question is from Alex Audi. I'm hoping I'm saying that right. They're asking, what are the implications of China's interference in private companies like the Houston Rockets, Apple and the Taiwan flag, the Blizzard ban? We're already seeing like in the New York Times piece and the TechCrunch piece that we just talked about, like a groundswell of kind of like organic opposition to China. So the China, the, there's a real China debate happening in democracies kind of everywhere now, like a little bit less so in uh, New Zealand, but like basically everywhere. Ch in some sense, China is causing this with its heavy handedness. I saw a take on Twitter that I'll try to link in the show notes arguing in BBC online that actually like these, the NBA's reaction and this organic groundswell against China, it is not indicative of like what's going to happen there they said like it's an it's it's the it's the exception to the rule or the exception that proves the rule that uh somebody that people get proud all of a sudden or nationalistic about opposing china actually for every one of those cases you have 20 cases of censorship and silence that either doesn't get reported or that gets reported and forgotten and so the trend line may well be that you know China creates a dystopian world and we're all censoring ourselves for money, but there is an organic reaction being produced against China because of China's heavy handedness with private corporations. So the only consequence right now is that there's a debate. Okay, great. And the second question is an anonymous one. I'm a sophomore at Georgetown and desperately want a career in foreign policy. Should I pursue a political science PhD? So it's kind of a given that if you're uh, at Georgetown, you desperately want a career in foreign policy because that's the MO of everybody at Georgetown. Should you get a PhD? If you, if you only want it as a credential for a foreign policy career, then you shouldn't do it. If you are genuinely intellectually curious, if you're inquisitive and if the IR literature that you've seen is like very stimulating to you and like if you look at the Cuban Missile Crisis and you're like, God, I want to know more. And if that's you, then a PhD might be in your future, right? And then it's just a question of what you do with it or like it could end up becoming just a credential. But what I know is that like almost no Nobody survives the process of getting a PhD unless they have like love of the game. Like there has to be a passion for the subject there first. And then you can have careerism too. You can be obsessed with like, you know, becoming a policy celebrity or something like these things are not mutually exclusive, but you have to really love the subject matter because it's, it takes a long fucking time. It's the world's biggest project. I went through like five life changes during my PhD. I almost became, <laughs> I almost became a cage fighter. I got married i got divorced i got remarried like it's fuck, like so much shit dude you you become a different human being by the time it's over so there has there has to be a through line of like passion for it and if that's not there then don't do it if if someone wants to become the new richard holbrook how should they do that 
uh, go back in time. Make sure you're a white man. <laughs> yeah, just change that real quick. <laughs> yeah, those are those are like some necessary prior conditions. If you want to be a Richard Holbrook now, it's you you kind of do actually need a PhD because it's hard to be. It's it's very hard to establish a public face on foreign policy as like an authority or whatever unless you have those like academic chops it's a meaningful credential for being a public intellectual and it's possible if you've been an, uh, an assistant secretary or a secretary of defense or something like that if you've been really high level it's possible to sort of flip that and monetize it there are people with master's degrees in this space who do very well but they're the exception to the rule the average think tanker the average like policy celebrity person has a PhD you definitely are viewed favorably in the bureaucracy if you have a PhD. Uh, like, people recognize it. it. It has cachet, whether it should or not. And um, it's just that, like, that can't be the reason why you do it. So don't do a PhD unless you're, like, you really want a PhD. But also, if you want to become the next Richard Holbrook, you probably should get a PhD. <laughs> Last question from Patrick Foran. What is the strategic logic behind Treaty on Open Skies? Is it really a mutually assured observation? So uh, the Treaty on Open Skies, it was late 90s or early 90s. Um, it doesn't just involve Russia and the U.S. It involves almost all of the NATO allies as well. So it's a multilateral treaty. It's just that the U.S. and Russia are sort of core to it. And it allows for unarmed uh, military observation by aerial means of each other's countries and of each other's airspace. And the whole point is to facilitate confidence building and transparency. And in a strategic sense, the logic really is that like you want to buffer the, against the possibility of like a guns of August situation where you're like you're mobilizing militaries, but like you didn't intend to suggest that you're about to invade and they like you're you're managing misperceptions that could cause conflict. And when you're talking about like nuclear states, especially, that's super important. How important is it? It's probably like m marginal, like what, we're not postured against each other to attack, but the, there's no downside to maintaining this treaty, right? And so like occasionally Russia has been in violation of at least the spirit of this treaty where like they would limit our ability to monitor them. But in general, our, our NATO allies super value this thing. So it is a it is a kind of nod to the NATO alliance. It's it's valuable in that sense. It also puts their mind at ease in the sense that they can track and follow certain amounts of Russian military activity within Russian borders. And they don't have to fear that like the Russians are coming. And so just to be able to know that, you know, to like almost the equivalent of like flipping your phone on and being like, okay, I don't have any alerts. Thank God. Okay. So now I can go to sleep. And like, there's a, there's an element of that there, you know, like it's not super important for reducing the risk of war, but that, that is the kind of logic of it. And the most important thing is like, it costs you nothing to stay in the treaty. So this is all coming up because before John Bolton left the National Security Council. He had people who were in tow trying to withdraw from the treaty, and there was some announcement of Trump's intention to withdraw, but it's not clear if that will actually happen. It might make for a good future prediction market question. All right, gang, that's going to do it. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever it is you're listening. Please subscribe. And then, of course, buy meacoffee.com slash undiplomatic. Peace.